0: Last week in the House, they were out of session. So last week in the Senate, they came back to work on Monday and voted to confirm Martin Walsh to serve as Secretary of Labor. The vote to confirm was 68 to 29. Majority Leader Schumer then invoked Rule 14 on H.J. Res. 17, the bill that removes the expiration date for ratification of the Equal Rights Amendment. Rule 14 allows the majority leader to move a bill directly to the floor without having to go through a committee. On Tuesday, the Senate voted to invoke cloture on and then to confirm the nomination of Shalanda Young to be Deputy Director of the Office of Management and Budget. The vote to confirm was 63 to 37. Then the Senate voted to invoke cloture on and then to confirm the nomination of Vivek Murthy to be Surgeon General. The vote to confirm was 57 to 43. On Wednesday, the Senate voted to invoke cloture on and then to confirm the nomination of Rachel Levine to be Assistant Secretary of Health and Human Services. The vote to confirm was 52 to 48. Levine became the first openly transgendered person to be confirmed by the United States Senate for a position in the federal government. The same day, the Senate also voted to invoke cloture on and then to confirm the nomination of David Turk to be Deputy Secretary of Energy. The vote to confirm was 98 to 2. Then the Senate voted to invoke cloture on the motion to proceed to H.R. 1799, a bill to extend the covered period for the Paycheck Protection program loans. On Thursday, the Senate considered a few amendments to the bill and then voted by 90 to 2 to pass it as amended, and then they were done. Now to racism in the Senate, and yes, we had several correct answers. On Tuesday, the ugly face of racism reared its head in the United States Senate. I'm not talking about voting rights legislation. I'm not talking about legislation to defund the police. I'm talking about actual racism. That is a promise of action to come based on the race of a person of interest. In this case, the persons of interest are future Biden administration nominees, and the racists are two female Democrat senators, Illinois Democrat Senator Tammy Duckworth. I'm sorry, Illinois Democrat Senator Tammy Duckworth, unhappy that there have not been enough Asian-American Pacific Islanders appointed to senior position in the Biden administration, announced that until she hears a commitment from the White House to nominate more AAPI nominees, she is, quote, a no vote on the floor on all non-diversity nominees, unquote, including subcabinet and judicial nominees. Quote, I will vote for racial minorities and I will vote for LGBTQ, but anybody else, I'm not voting for, end quote, she said. In other words, you can win her vote if you are not a white heterosexual. But if you are, tough luck. Later that same day, Hawaii Democrat Senator Maisie Hirano said she would join Senator Duckworth in her pledge, quote, we're very serious about this because Joe Biden made a commitment to have a diverse cabinet and diverse White House. That is what we're calling for, end quote, she said. Biden, it turns out, is the first president in 20 years not to nominate an AAPI cabinet secretary of any of the executive branch departments. Of course, he's also the first president ever to have an AAPI vice president, so he's got that going for him. But that's apparently not enough for Duckworth and Hirono. This maneuver so freaked out Democrats on Capitol Hill and at the White House that within hours, the two had dropped the threat after multiple conversations with White House officials and agreements about future nominees to come. Near as I can tell, the only solid commitment Duckworth and Hirono received was a promise to appoint a high-level AAPI liaison at the White House to represent the community. But what really amazes me is that in this day and age, when they are playing the race card on the battle over the filibuster— Two Democrat senators would be so blind to the reality of racism in practice that they could make racist threats without thinking twice about it, or if they did think twice, without seeming to care. Now to redistricting. You may recall that several weeks ago we discussed how the decennial reapportionment and redistricting was going to be affected by the Census Bureau's tardiness. Many states have deadlines enshrined in state law for when certain mileposts of the redistricting have to have been accomplished. And those deadlines are going to be thrown off because the Census Bureau is going to be very late in transferring to the states the data needed for redrawing district lines. The state of Ohio went so far as to sue the Census Bureau, demanding that the Census Bureau release the data earlier than the Bureau had indicated was possible. On Wednesday of last week, Thomas M. Rose, federal district judge for the Southern District of Ohio, ruled that Ohio Attorney General Dave Yost had failed to demonstrate that the state would be injured by getting the data from the Census Bureau in September rather than March. Judge Rose said the lawsuit lacks standing or redressability. Quote, Ohio seeks the impossible, he wrote, citing precedent that says a court cannot order a party to jump higher, run faster, or lift more than she is physically capable, end quote. Now to Hunter Biden. On Thursday, Politico reported on a rather bizarre episode from the life of Hunter Biden. It seems that on October 23, 2018, according to the report, quote, President Joe Biden's son Hunter and daughter-in-law Hallie were involved in a bizarre incident in which Hallie took Hunter's gun and threw it in a trash can behind a grocery store, only to return later to find it gone. Delaware police began investigating, concerned that the trash can was across from a high school and that the missing gun could be used in a crime. But a curious thing happened at the time. Secret Service agents approached the owner of the store where Hunter bought the gun and asked to take the paperwork involving the sale, according to two people, one of whom has firsthand knowledge of the episode. And the other was briefed by a Secret Service agent after the fact, end quote. So Politico's angle is that the Secret Service, which had no reason to be guarding either Hunter or Hallie Biden after Joe Biden had left office, was for some reason inserting itself into the episode. The store owner, who knew better, declined to give the paperwork on the gun sale to the Secret Service, which now denies any knowledge of this episode. But what may become more interesting is what's in the paperwork, which Politico obtained. For those who are not aware, Form 4473 is a mandatory piece of paperwork for anyone who purchases a firearm from a commercial dealer. It is designed to ensure that the purchaser is eligible to buy a firearm, to confirm that he is buying the firearm for himself, as opposed to on behalf of someone else. And to create a record of the sale that is kept by the gun store and the purchaser, but not by the government. The form contains many questions, including this one. Quote, are you an unlawful user of or addicted to marijuana or any depressant, stimulant, narcotic drug, or any other controlled substance? End quote. Hunter Biden responded no to that question on the Form 4473, according to the Politico Report. Hunter Biden was discharged from the Navy Reserve in 2013 for drug use. He's been a known user struggling with addiction since that time. He was kicked out of a strip club in 2019 for smoking crack. He characterizes himself as an addict and, in fact, has a book coming out in April. It's called Beautiful Things, and the publisher says it will center on the younger Biden's well-publicized struggles with substance abuse, unquote. It seems fair to me to conclude that Hunter Biden lied when he answered no to that question. The question now is, will it make a difference? Will anyone in Joe Biden's Department of Justice follow up? Now to the Georgia election law reforms. On Thursday, Georgia Republican Governor Brian Kemp signed into law the Election Integrity Act of 2021, a comprehensive voting rights reform bill making Georgia the first presidential battleground state to enact significant reforms to its election laws after last year's election. The law seeks to firm up election integrity in the state. Not surprisingly, Democrats and liberals objected loudly. The law tightens rules for absentee voting by requiring voters to provide a driver's license or state ID card number to request and then submit absentee ballots. The law reduces the chances for voter fraud in the use of ballot drop boxes by requiring them to be located in early voting locations and mandating that they only be accessible during the hours when those early voting sites are open for business. In addition, the ballot drop boxes will not be available in the last four days of an election cycle. Moreover, the law requires the counties publish the total number of votes cast and by what methods they were cast by 10 p.m. on election evening. The state legislature and the Georgia State Elections Board are given new powers while the Secretary of State is removed from his current position as chairman of that board and is instead relegated to serving as an ex-officio non-voting member of the board. In addition, the new law eliminates the all-party jungle primary for special elections while cutting the runoff election period from nine weeks to just four weeks. The law expands weekend early in-person voting Let me read that again. The law expands weekend early in-person voting by requiring two early voting dates on Saturdays and gives counties the choice to hold early voting on two Sundays. The law requires three weeks of early in-person voting and mandates that early voting sites be open for business for at least eight hours with an option to keep them open for 12 hours per day. Further, it prohibits state and local officials from mailing unsolicited absentee ballot request applications to lists of registered voters. The law requires third-party groups to more clearly label absentee ballot request applications they distribute to voters, and the law blocks volunteers from passing out food or drink to voters waiting in line to cast their ballots. That function is now reserved for official poll workers liberals in the media predictably went nuts. Three liberal voter rights groups, the New Georgia Project, the Black Voters Matter Fund, and Rise, Inc. didn't even wait 24 hours to file suit. On Thursday night, just hours after Governor Kemp signed the bill into law, they filed a 35-page complaint in federal court in Atlanta that alleges that minority voters will be damaged by the new law, which the complaint says illegally suppresses voters' rights in violation of both the Constitution and And the 1965 Voting Rights Act. But lawsuits will not be the only way liberals fight back. The National Black Justice Coalition went so far as to demand that the PGA Tour and the Masters Golf Tournament pull the tournament, which will take place in less than two weeks from the Augusta National Golf Club. Ironically, the club's leaders had already decided to honor the first black golfer to play in the tournament, Lee Elder by establishing scholarships in his name to be distributed in 2021 for the first time, and by inviting him to be an honorary starter for the 2021 Masters Tournament, along with Jack Nicklaus and Gary Player. President Biden weighed in, too, calling the Georgia reforms Jim Crow in the 21st century. Karl Rove demolished that argument in one short appearance on Fox News. You can find a link to the Rove video clip in the suggested reading. More on stealing a House seat. On Monday, Democrat loser Rita Hart filed a brief with the House Administration Committee in the matter of the election contest in Iowa's 2nd Congressional District. In it, she urged the committee to conduct a hand recount of the roughly 400,000 ballots cast in the election to ensure that all the votes were counted properly. The committee has taken that suggestion under advisement. Some moderate and vulnerable House Democrats are beginning to voice their concerns about the wisdom of this entire maneuver. The Democrat majority in the House is only 219 to 211, with five vacancies. So if even just a few of them decide and announce that they will not vote to unseat Congresswoman Miller Meeks, it could be lights out for the Hart Challenge. Meanwhile, on the other side of the Capitol Dome, Senate Republicans are getting involved in the contest. On Thursday of last week, Senate Republican Leader McConnell joined Iowa Republicans Senator Chuck Grassley and Joni Ernst and Arkansas Republican Senator Tom Cotton in sending an open letter to the business community regarding their desire to see and hear the business community speak out about the Iowa contest. They've taken an interesting angle in their letter. They're banking on the corporate community's announcements following the January 6th Capitol riot that the community's PACs would not support politicians who had voted to challenge the seating of electors from Arizona and Pennsylvania. What's good for the goose is good for the gander, they argue. If you're going to push for the acceptance of state-certified results in the Electoral College, you must be consistent in the matter of the Iowa contest and similarly push for the acceptance of the state-certified result. Now to the Corrupt Politicians Act. On Wednesday, the Senate Committee on Rules and Administration, chaired by Minnesota Democrat Senator Amy Klobuchar, held a hearing on S-1, the Senate Democrat version of the Corrupt Politicians Act. Both Senate Majority Leader Schumer and Minority Leader McConnell testified. That's something rare, and it speaks to just how important is this particular piece of legislation. For both sides, it's the whole ballgame. The star of the show from the point of view of those opposed to the bill was Texas Republican Senator Ted Cruz. He used his five minutes of question time to lay out just how bad this bill is, and I'm going to take a few moments to quote him. This bill is the single most dangerous bill this committee has ever considered. This bill is designed to corrupt the election process permanently, and it is a brazen and shameless power grab by Democrats. It speaks volumes that this is H.R. 1 and S 1. That's the number one priority of Democrats, is not COVID, it's not immunizations, it's not getting people back to work, it's not getting kids back in school, it's keeping Democrats in power for a hundred years. And how do they do this? They do this by instituting a bill that will promote widespread fraud and illegal voting. Under this bill, there's automatic registration of anybody. If you get a driver's license, if you get a welfare payment, if you get an unemployment payment, if you attend a public university. Now, everyone knows there are millions of illegal aliens who have driver's licenses, who are getting welfare benefits, who attend public universities. This bill is designed to register every one of those illegal aliens. But it's not just the illegal aliens. This bill is designed to get criminals to vote. A great many states across this country prohibit felons from voting. This bill strikes down all those laws. This bill says if you're a murderer, if you're a rapist, if you're a child molester, we, the Democrats, want you voting. Every one of those state laws is struck down. So apparently the Democrats have determined that if millions of illegal aliens get to vote, if millions of criminals get to vote, that that will benefit Democrats. Because they understand that criminals and illegal aliens are much, much more likely to vote for Democrats. Not only that, this bill strikes down photo ID laws. 29 states have photo ID laws, including, by the way, the state of Arizona, including the state of Georgia, including the state of West Virginia, all of which I might note have Democratic senators. But I'll tell you, the Senate Democrats are so interested in maintaining power that they're asking senators from Arizona, from Georgia, from West Virginia to join a bill that strikes down the photo ID laws in their states, Not only that, this bill mandates ballot harvesting. It mandates party operatives being able to go into nursing homes, collect every ballot there, throw out the ballots they don't like, because there's no supervision over the ballot harvesting. The Carter-Baker Commission, chaired by Democratic President Jimmy Carter, said ballot harvesting was a major source of voter fraud. So what do Senate Democrats do? Look at the Carter-Baker Commission, say, where do we get fraud? Let's do more of that. This bill has rightly been called the Corrupt Politicians Act, because it is designed to keep corrupt politicians in office and everyone supporting it should be ashamed, end quote. Stay tuned. Defending the filibuster, finally. On Tuesday, Senate Republican Leader Mitch McConnell went to the floor to deliver remarks on the history of the filibuster, taking on the Democrats' latest coordinated campaign, to wit that the filibuster was created so that slave owners could hold power over our government, unquote, as Massachusetts Democratic Senator Ed Markey tweeted, McConnell actually cited the fact-checkers at the Washington Post, quote, quote, historians told PolitiFact that the filibuster did not emerge from debates over slavery or segregation, unquote. One scholar's account was that, quote, the very first Senate filibuster was over a bridge across the Potomac River, unquote. The Junior Senator from Massachusetts just got three pinocchios from the Washington Post for these arguments. Their look at history found, quote, "The first recorded filibusters in the Senate concerned issues such as where to locate Congress, what to do about Andrew Jackson's censure over withdrawn federal deposits, who would be appointed to a publication called The Congressional Globe and whether to create a National Bank, end quote. That same day, Nebraska Republican Senator Ben Sass went to the floor to read into the record something he found in the congressional record from 2005, to wit, a speech by then Delaware Democrat Senator Joe Biden defending the filibuster. In that 2005 speech, Biden said his defense of the filibuster, quote, may be one of the most important speeches for historical purposes that I will have given in the 32 years since I have been in the Senate, end quote. And he went on to say, quote, I pray to God when Democrats take back control, we don't make this kind of power grab. History will judge this majority harshly, harshly if it makes this catastrophic move, unquote. You can find a link to the C-SPAN video clip of Biden defending the filibuster in the suggested reading. The filibuster was not created so that slave owners could hold power over our government. In fact, the birth of the filibuster came about by historical accident, as former Vice President Aaron Burr, on his way out the door in 1805, suggested to senators that they should consider cleaning up their rule book, and the result was a decision to remove the rule regarding ordering or moving the previous question, which allows a legislative body to bring debate to a close. Back then, that motion was rarely used. So senators followed his advice and removed the rule, and in doing so, removed the ability of the Senate to bring debate to a close. It wasn't until 1917, more than 100 years later, that the Senate instituted a rule, Rule 22, to allow for the Senate to bring debate to a close through a motion for cloture. Historians disagree over when the filibuster was first used, but by at least one account, the first known instance of a formal filibuster came about in 1837, when supporters of former President Andrew Jackson, who had been censured by the Senate in 1834 over Jackson's decision to withdraw federal deposits from the Bank of the United States, decided they wanted to expunge the censure. But a group of Whig senators used the filibuster to delay the maneuver and successfully blocked that effort. Another historian disputes that and argues that the first recorded filibuster took place over a bridge across the Potomac River. Other early filibusters involved an 1841 dispute over appointments to the Congressional Globe, a newspaper of the era, and a two-week marathon filibuster designed to block passage of a bill that would establish a national bank. The point is, contrary to what Markey and other Democrats are now arguing, the filibuster was not created so that slave owners could hold power over our government. Fox News' John Roberts did some digging and reported a few days ago that in the last Congress Republicans used the filibuster once, while Democrats used it 327 times. So, except for the fact that we're talking about something political, it would be somewhat odd that Democrats, just a year ago, were quite happy to use a parliamentary maneuver they now decry as racist. But this is politics, so nothing should surprise us. And that's our Washington Report for this week. Now I'm taking off my Washington Report hat and putting on my call to action hat so that I can share with you the two calls to action for this week. First, please, if you haven't yet done so, do it this week. Call your senators to urge a no vote on S1. And second, uh, I don't know if we have the petition language up as of right now, but if we don't, we will very shortly. We have a new petition regarding the Epic Times. The Epic Times is being denied a renewal of its credential at the House Press Gallery. Uh, that credential at the House Press Gallery is very important because uh, that's, that's the main one. If you get your credential at the House Press Gallery, uh, you're virtually guaranteed to get the credential at the Senate Press Gallery and also important at the White House. Uh, we're not sure why the Epic Times is being denied renewal, but we don't like it. So we are about to post a petition urging the relevant authorities to renew the House Press Gallery credential for the Epic Times, and we would appreciate, appreciate it greatly if you could sign that and share that with your groups. And with that, uh, Amy, have we got any questions in the log?
1: Yes, we do. We have some questions and some comments. Um, so let's go to MC's question first because um, I think a lot of people have um, S1 on their mind. He says, uh, Bill, if the Corrupt Politicians Act manage, manages to f- get forced through, what will happen to the new Georgia election protection laws?
0: Oh, well, all those... If S-1 or H-R-1 or anything approaching them uh, out of a conference committee were to become law, then that law would reign supreme over the Georgia law. Federal law supersedes state law. So anywhere where the Georgia state election laws are in conflict with the federal election laws, the federal election laws would preempt the state laws. For instance, that new provision about requiring a signature verification on the application to request an absentee ballot. That's now the law in Georgia, but HR1 and S1 both gut signature verification requirements at the state level. So, even though the state legislature in Georgia just passed it and decreed the, and the governor signed it into law and it is now the law of the land in the state of Georgia, that would go by the wayside if S-1 were to be enacted into law.
1: Okay. More reason why it's important to defeat this. Uh, Joy wants to know um, the stat that you gave that the Democrats used the filibuster 327 times and the Republicans once. What time period was that? Over what span of time was that? Was it a year? It
0: was two years. years. Okay. That was that was during the course of the One hundred and sixteenth Congress. And what I'm dying to know is what was the one time that Republicans used the filibuster? They were in the majority in the one hundred and sixteenth Congress in the Senate. So I'm trying to figure out why would Republicans need to use a filibuster to prevent a piece of legislation from moving to the floor? I, I don't know I don't know what the example is,, uh, but I'm going to see if I can find out.
1: Thank you. Uh, Bill, I'm not sure if you can answer this, but I'm going to ask. Um, Robert wants to know, does the Georgia law provide penalties and prosecution of election violations?
0: Oh, I'm sure it does. Yes. Okay. There, are both, there, there There's both jail time uh, and there are financial penalties as well, fines. Depending on which provision of the code you violate, and, I will, and let me let me take let me take this opportunity to go back uh, because so so many people have focused on the one thing as as Debbie pointed out this bill is more than 90 pages long there's an awful lot that was changed here uh, but it seems that everybody has focused in on the one thing and, and that is the thing that that President Biden focused in on uh, and that is no more food and water to be passed out to people standing in line. All right, let's be clear about something. First off, prior to the passage of this particular legislation, it was already the law in Georgia and nobody had raised a ruckus about it that you were not allowed to give gifts to people standing in line. Food and water are considered gifts. So it was already against the law to hand food or water to somebody standing in line within 150 feet of the polling place. That's the distance, 150 feet. Apparently, a lot of people were not paying attention to this law. Apparently, a lot of people were violating this law. They were handing food and water, as as Debbie was talking about. They were handing food and water to people who were waiting in line, who were within 150 feet of the polling place. The legislature decided, apparently, hey, we're serious about this. It's a law. And just to make sure that everybody got the message, they added a provision to this new law that they passed last week that made that made absolutely clear Food and water are considered gifts in that context. So volunteers for Stacey Abrams organization are not allowed to walk up and down that line handing out food and water any more than they are allowed to walk up and down that line handing out $100 bills. It is still the case that a poll worker is not subject to this provision. A poll worker can bring drinks out from inside the polling place to people who have been waiting in line for hours in the hot sun, although I don't know how much the sun is hot in November in Georgia. So I just I want to be clear that, uh, as is often the case, a lot of people are focusing in on just a few words or just a headline, and they're not understanding the full context. So the full context is it was it was previously against law. It was a previous legislature that passed a law that said no gifts to anybody standing in line within 150 feet of a polling place for obvious reasons. Food and water were specifically listed in that list. But apparently so many people didn't pay attention to that law that the legislature this time decided, hey, while we're cleaning up our laws, our election laws, let's make it absolutely clear to people what we're talking about food and water. You can't pass it out. If you, if you're from a third party organization, you got no business handing out gifts to people standing in line. So that's what that's about. It's, it's not the way president Biden, you know, not surprisingly, it's not the way he makes it sound.
1: Yeah. And, um, just to echo Dan, um, Prior to even you mentioning this bill, said, and I think it's when Debbie was talking about. He says in Pennsylvania, they have a law that prohibits anything of value, including water, from being passed out at the polls. So, um, just um, he was he's just echoing what you were saying. Um, Barbara is asking um, all the things that are um, in the law that passed for Georgia are a good start. Was there anything? Um, being done with the voting machines. Do we know if any laws um, target those? I
0: haven't. I haven't heard about the passage of any laws that targets voting machines. Okay. Thank you.
1: Um, while we're on this, um, I think Dr. Bob is just looking, maybe for a comment. He says um, Mike Lindell has made a comment. That he plans to file um, with SCOTUS to overturn the election. Um, he said he can provide some examples of what he said to Bannon on Friday, if desired. Um, Bill, do you want to add anything to that?
0: Uh, no, I'll just I'll I'll wait to see what actually happens okay. there. Okay. There's been an awful lot of talk. I'd I'd actually want to see a filing.
1: Okay. Okay. Um, okay, Mar is asking, why is federal laws passed by Congress um, subvert the Constitution as, as HR1 does that changes state election laws? Um, if you violate the Constitution, I thought it could only be done by amending the Constitution.
0: Well, if we're talking about who's got primacy in election law, let me we've we've done this a couple of times, but let me let me do it again to set the proper context. So the elections clause is found in Article One, because that's the Congress, Article one, Section Four, and it reads as follows The times, places and manner of holding elections for senators and representatives shall be prescribed in each state by the legislature thereof. Semicolon. But the Congress may at any time by law make or alter such regulations, except as to the places of choosing senators. Okay, so we have two clauses here. The first one, the drafters of the Constitution make clear that they want the times, places, and manner of holding elections to be prescribed by the state legislature. They say that right up front. That's the opening that's the opening of the sentence. We're going to we're going to give the state legislatures the power to determine the laws regarding elections. But Congress can alter them at any time. So Congress has the power. It's not unconstitutional for Congress to pass an election law that is in conflict with a with an election law that was passed by a state legislature and we know that when that happens the law that congress passed is the law that counts because federal law is more important than state law in our system federal law trumps state law so are there things in hr1 s1 that are unconstitutional i think very likely so um Does that mean we can't pass the law? No, it doesn't. Uh, We passed a law in 1971 called the Federal Election Campaign Act. We amended it in 1974. And in 1976, the Supreme Court struck down as unconstitutional, some very significant provisions of that 1971 law. Uh, Specifically, the law didn't include just contribution limits. That's That's the law that set a limit on the amount of money that an individual donor can give to a campaign for federal office. At the time, they set the limit at $1,000 per election, $1,000 for the primary, $1,000 for the general election. So in any two-year cycle, a House candidate could raise a total of $2,000 from an individual. Another part of that same law established a spending limit, said that House candidates for the House could only spend so much money, candidates for the Senate could only spend so much money. And that was challenged before the Supreme Court in a, in a case called Buckley v. Valeo. That Buckley was not William F. Buckley Jr. of National Review. It was his brother, Jim, who was a senator from the state of New York. And in Buckley v. Vallejo, 1976, the Supreme Court struck down spending limits, not contribution limits. They struck down spending limits saying that in a modern society where mass communication is necessary, it costs money to exercise your First Amendment rights to freedom of speech. Therefore, for our purposes, money equals speech. You can't limit speech, therefore you can't limit the money that is paid to speak. So contributions limits went out the the window, but other elements of the 1971 law stayed in place. In 2002, the Congress passed BICRA, the Bipartisan Campaign Reform Act, otherwise known as McCain-Feingold significant changes to campaign finance laws. I can remember because I was I was the press secretary of the Republican National Committee in the 2000 presidential cycle. That was George W. Bush against Al Gore. That was the last cycle under the old system before McCain-Feingold came into play. And I can tell you back then, my boss, Chairman Jim Nicholson, spent an awful lot of time and money on the phone and on the road raising soft money contributions. Huge, huge, Dollar amounts uh, where there were no limits. Individual wanted to write a $10 million check, he could do so to the RNC. Uh, and then along came McCain- Feingold and put a limit on the amount of money that an individual could give to a party committee, set an individual limit for each individual party committee. Remember, there's the Republican National Committee, the National Republican Senatorial Committee, the National Republican Congressional Committee, then you got all your state parties. So there was an individual limit set and an overall aggregate limit so that an individual could only give a certain amount of money. Even if he was a billionaire and wanted to spend all his money on political contributions, he was limited. That was eventually, portions of that law were eventually struck down in 2010 by a Supreme Court decision called Citizens United. What, look, I I don't think HR1 or S1 is going to pass. I hope to God it doesn't pass because this is the worst, Ted Ted Cruz is actually underselling, believe it or not. This is by far the worst piece of legislation we've ever seen. This This is worse than Obamacare. This is worse than Bill Clinton's tax hikes. This is, this is worse than any individual piece of legislation because it will totally gut one side's ability to communicate politically. And it will usher in a Democratic Party majority at the federal level for a century. This would kill the Republican Party as a national entity. Uh, And that means that we lose on every issue. We lose on abortion. We lose on guns. We lose on taxes. We lose on spending. We lose on LGBTQIA issues. We lose on everything if this thing becomes law. Uh, And that's why I I, I cannot believe that it would happen that way. But if it did, I guarantee you there will be lawsuits filed and the unconstitutional provisions will be tossed out. I'm, uh, having said that, I can't even begin to tell you how much of it is unconstitutional, because I haven't looked at it from that way. Um, I'm, I'm looking at the the pure exercise of power politics. They could ram this thing through the House, as they have. They're not going to be able to ram it through the Senate. Uh, and, and something very significant happened last week, and that was the Joe Manchin. I, I Wow believe it or not, as long as that Washington report was, I left out a paragraph that I had actually formulated in my head. And for some reason I didn't write it in. On Thursday, Senator Manchin released a five paragraph statement with his thoughts on S1. And it was a very, very cleverly crafted statement that spent four paragraphs talking to his fellow Democrats in the Senate about how much he liked their bill. And he went line by line through, I don't know, a half a dozen different provisions. I really like this. And I really like that. And who could be against this? This is so fair. This is so reasonable. But the very last paragraph is the whole reason that he put out the statement. Because in the very last paragraph, that's where he said, we can't ruin this by doing it as a partisan exercise. It's got to be bipartisan. And that's why I look forward to working with my Republican colleagues to bring them on board. So what he's really saying is, hey, fellow Democrats, don't be looking to me to blow up the filibuster just to jam through your voting rights bill. It ain't going to happen.